0: Hello, everyone. This is R.W. Lee, and you are listening to Evenings in Church History, the goal of which is to connect Christians to their past to influence their future. Let's get started. Tonight, we will be concluding our study of Augustine by examining his most famous and undoubtedly the most influential work Augustine ever wrote, called The City of God in the year 410, The Visigoths, a nomadic tribe originating near modern-day Germany, attacked and sacked Rome. In Augustine's own words, it was this event and the circumstances surrounding it that moved him to write his greatest work. Up to this point, many Romans, whether consciously or no, had come to view their great city as eternal, impenetrable, indomitable, and yet now this rank barbarian horde had come and subjected these great citizens to the same kind of ruthlessness that Romans normally reserved for only their greatest enemies. The invasion only lasted for a grand total of three days, and frankly left Rome in pretty good shape considering what it had been through. But even though the physical impact could have been much greater, it was the spirit of the Roman people that was the most damaged. Only around 26 years prior to this, Theodosius I had abolished the ancient Roman pagan religion and set up Christianity as the new official religion of the Roman Empire. In light of everything that had happened, many Roman citizens began to look at Christianity and blame this great transference of power for the weakening state of the Roman Empire. Oh, if only she had remained faithful to her gods, Rome would be a mighty city once again, they would say. It was precisely this idea that Augustine intended to respond to. In 412, Augustine received a letter from a friend, Roman civil servant, and fellow Christian named Marcellinus. He had been appointed by the emperor to mediate the conflict happening between the Orthodox Christians and the Donatists, and in so doing, had come into contact with a number of educated pagans who seemed to have some good questions. Essentially, he was looking to Augustine to provide him with an apologetic or a defense of the faith and one has only to look at the questions he poses to see the salient differences between the retractors of his day as opposed to our own. One such question had to do with miracles, but perhaps not in the way that you would think. Rather than doubting the existence, Marcellinus says that in his experience, pagans will ask him why they should be taken seriously when the miracles of the pagan literature are much more spectacular, much more phenomenal, than those claimed by Christians. No, those miracles seem a little too lowbrow to the educated pagan. Moreover, what good has been gained by Rome or her people? It seems ever since Christianity took over, things have really gone from bad to worse. In the relatively brief interaction Augustine has with Marcellinus, he begins to formulate ideas that will come to a fuller fruition in the city of God, namely the idea of two kingdoms, two cities standing in opposition to one another. It took Augustine 13 years to complete the city of God, making him 72 years old when he finally wrote the last page. This was only a few years prior to his death in 430. Augustine begins his work in Book 1's preface, saying, Most glorious is the city of God, whether in this passing age where she dwells by faith as a pilgrim among the ungodly, or in the security of that eternal home, which she now patiently awaits until righteousness shall return unto judgment, but which she will then possess perfectly, in final victory, in perfect peace. In this work, O Marcellinus, most beloved son, due to you by my promise, I have undertaken to defend her against those who favor their own gods above her founder. The work is great and arduous, But God is our helper. To many, arduous may seem like the proper adjective to describe this massive tome. However, I cannot commend it to you enough. Reading it in its entirety could easily take the better part of a year, if not more, but it is so filled with interpretive insight, pastoral advice, and just godly wisdom that I think it would be well worth the labor. At any rate, I'm going to try and summarize it for you as best as I can. To Augustine, the city of God is a heavenly city, and it stands in opposition to the earthly city, each with its own citizens and experiences. This heavenly city is both already present upon the world and yet waiting for the final victory and perfect peace, in his own words. The city is created by the love of God and seeks for the glory of God above everything. The only wisdom it seeks is the right worship of God, so that he is above all else. They each have their citizens that have been appointed and predestined by God. Those of the heavenly city have been transformed to be good by God's own grace, and those of the earthly city will experience his eternal punishment. But it is love that is the supreme motivating factor extending to the whole of life, wherever it is directed. If it is a love for one's self, then the exaltation of self is going to ultimately be desired. If love is for God, then it's from that framework that wisdom can be found. If one is looking to themselves, then ultimately what they desire is just to please themselves. But if they are looking to God, then they are seeking to please God. True love will see God as the most excellent and look to Him as the ultimate reward. Depending upon whichever city one is in, the highest good is going to be determined differently. Either it is the self or it is God. Basically, it is the direction of all life that is at stake. If life is going to be directed towards the earthly city, then all that can be cared about is the bettering of this physical and mental man, this physical person. But if it is life towards this heavenly city, then what life ultimately encompasses is the glory of God. The motivation and purpose are always going to be relevant as even nations rise and fall, all asking the same question, why am I here? And that is to give God glory. Augustine used this opportunity to point out the glaring hypocrisy of many classic philosophers. They would point to human virtue as the ultimate human good and encourage people to place pleasure as subservient to their own virtue. Yet by doing this, Augustine points out that they are making pleasure an end unto itself. He uses the analogy of a noble-born queen sitting upon her throne lazily, directing her subjects to press his point. He says, picture pleasure enthroned like a highborn queen surrounded by ministering virtues who watch her every nod, ready to do whatever she bids them. Thus, she bids prudence to examine carefully in what way pleasure may be both supreme and safe. She commands justice to render whatever services she can in the interest of friendships, which are necessary for bodily comfort and to avoid doing wrong lest pleasure might be jeopardized by the breaking of laws. She bids fortitude keep her mistress, pleasure, very much in mind, so that when the body suffers some affliction short of death, the memory of former pleasures may mitigate the pangs of present pain. She orders temperance to take just so much of food or of other pleasant things that health may not be endangered by any excess or pleasure, which, for the Epicureans, is mainly a matter of bodily health, be seriously checked. Augustine is not saying that virtue is wrong or even shouldn't be pursued. In fact, we absolutely should pursue virtue, yet we should not pursue virtue in the service of self-aggrandizement. If one pursues virtue as a citizen of the world, they pursue virtue in the service of vanity, in service to their own vainglory. And that is precisely what they are enslaved to, the pursuit of their own glory. The nature of true virtue can only found when pursued in the service of a greater glory, that is, God. But perhaps we will read more about that when we come to Jonathan Edwards. Psalm 87 says, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Selah. The scriptures speak about the city of God, and they describe it as glorious. Her citizens have been inspired by the love of its founder, and they long to then be a part of it. The founder of the city of God is the God of gods. In Augustine's words, quote, The citizens of the earthly city prefer their own gods to the founder of this holy city, for they do not know that he is the God of gods, end quote. There are many different directions that you can go with this, and Augustine has no qualms with following his mind wherever it leads. However, I think that it's most important in looking at this work that we come to understand how one meets this founder of the great city of God, how one can come to know God and be a citizen of his kingdom. God speaks by truth itself, in Augustine's words. Man does not receive this revelation through any kind of bodily hearing, but through his reason and his intelligence. He says, quote, whereby he rises above the lower parts which he has in common with the beasts, end quote. However, the mind is not infallible. Reason and intelligence are darkened because of sin and cannot find the truth on their own. That is why the renewal of the mind is necessary. And only God can do this so that, The mind may walk more confidently towards the truth, in Augustine's words. Jesus Christ, you see, is the ultimate revelation of that truth. He bridges this gap between God and man because he is the God-man. He is the truth. Therefore, the way that we get to God is through Jesus and him alone. In order for someone to get to Jesus, well, in Augustine's view, the best place to start is the Scriptures. He says to, quote, rely upon those who have seen him, end quote. This would be the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, which have the most eminent authority. In Augustine's mind, there are things that we ought to know, but we can't know through our own reason, because our hearts and our minds have been darkened and fouled by sin. Therefore, God has to reveal himself through the truth. But where does this truth come from? The created order is one kind of revelation, but it's ineffective, and we suppress it. Therefore, in the wisdom of God, he has given to us his word. He has given to us the scriptures and inspired the authors when he, quote, speaks soundlessly within them of his works, end quote. And so this scripture is this source of truth. It's the source of Christ, and it is how God reveals himself to us and how one can become a citizen of this city of God. Something as immense as the city of God. In a short phrase, I think the ultimate reward will be God Himself. He will be the end of our desires. We will not grow weary in praising and enjoying His glorious presence. We will one day abide with Him for eternity in a blessed state of felicity because our hope in the city of God is established in Him. It means the ultimate freedom for us and the ultimate freedom of our will. Not only the freedom to not sin, but the freedom from the will to sin. We will come to have this freedom because we have been. there's many more places that we could go I think this is as good a place as any to stop but before I go I just want to say thank you for listening thank you for subscribing and thank you for recommending this podcast to your friends again if you have any questions you would like for me to answer you can reach me at echpodcast@gmail.com. also if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play please take the time to review it seems like a little effort but it goes a long way With that, grace and peace to you, and thank you for joining me again this evening in church history.